Greetings, this is Jessica Schmidt, Director of Investment Communications here at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. Today's podcast is part two of our Global Investment Expeditions podcast with guest host and product specialist, Matt McLaughlin and Diamond Hill's international analysts. In part one, the group took us on a deep dive through Japanese culture and the long-term investment opportunities they're seeing in the country. If you missed part one and would like to listen, visit our insights page at www.diamond-hill.com. In this part two, we explore additional areas of the world, including the Scandinavian countries of Finland, Norway, and Sweden, as well as Canada and India. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy the second part of our Global Investment Expeditions podcast with Matt McLaughlin and our international analysts. Great, thanks. Chris, uh, you mentioned you recently got back from a trip to Scandinavia. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of your takeaways uh, fr- from that trip? Um, you know, maybe kind of the, the average person may know about, you know, companies like Ericsson or maybe even Sandvik uh, up in the Nordics. Um, what were your takeaways from that trip just generally? And, and maybe it's just some, some company uh, specific things that, that, that you noticed while traveling there. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And we could probably hold a separate podcast on, uh, on each of these different uh, markets because, uh, there were, you know, uh, many, many different, uh, you know, unique takes from each of these different places. Uh, but just maybe to kind of, kind of set the stage and give sort of a mental model of, uh, you know, these three different markets, at least from my perspective as a, um, you know, U.S.-based investor. Um, you know, we can kind of look at, you know, I guess to start. Norway versus Sweden, right? So one of the things I did in my time um, while I was in each of these different places was I met with local analysts there on the ground um, and had dinner um, and things like that, and just got to talk to people who had who had grown up in these markets. And you know, one of the points that uh, an analyst brought up in Norway, you know, in hindsight, thinking back, really made a lot of sense. Uh, it's pretty obvious when when you think about it, but it, it really kind of drove the point home to me in terms of you know at least comparing Norway to Sweden. So, for example, like Norway, big economy is like a big part of their GDP is basically comes from oil and gas. So they were in the '60s and '70s discovered oil, um, started a you know a large pension fund, uh, sovereign wealth fund in the '90s. Uh, which is now, I think, you know, give or take the largest in the world at this point. Um, and, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the companies um, economic GDP economics come from, come from oil and gas. There's also a big salmon farming uh, part of the market there. So really two kind of major industries and services is a big part of that as well. Um, but you think about it, um, this oil and gas sovereign wealth fund that's now the largest in the world, the, co- the country is able to pull 3% of that a year um, to provide for social benefits, right? So, you know, if you spread that over a population of in Norway, about 5 million people, uh, which is to kind of put that in perspective is about the size of, of South Carolina, you know, that goes a long way, 30 billion plus or so um, of spending um, per year that they can apply to these social benefits, Um, So that has, you know, this analyst was telling me that has pluses and minuses, you know, on the one side, the income divide is pretty even in a place like Norway, life's pretty good. Um, But on the other side of that, you know, there's a, it kind of stifles innovation a little bit. So like I mentioned, two major industries there, 
um, and life's pretty good. So there's less of a, you know, sort of motivation, if you will, to, to innovate. Um, and so you kind of, if you compare Norway's market um, to some a place like Sweden, which is right next door, that doesn't have the oil and gas exposure and doesn't have this, uh, you know, the safety net with the sovereign wealth fund, you see a much bigger market. So there's in uh, Sweden, the population's about twice the size, but it also has about twice the number of public companies that are over a billion dollars. So right, just jumping back real quick, Norway has 50 or so companies above USD, 1 billion in market cap. Uh, Sweden has about 120 um, or so. So, and they have a much broader industry base uh, within Sweden, sort of because of that. They there's an incentive to you know they have similar social benefits, but they have to work a lot harder to achieve those. Um, that you know, relative speaking to to Norway. So, this was one of the just sort of the things that uh, this local analyst uh, had brought up to me that I thought. Uh, was really interesting and really made it made a lot of sense as I was reflecting back on that. We could take that as Norway and Sweden. Just jumping over quickly to Finland, uh, which was where I was for the first part of the trip. Um, very interesting market here as well. So in terms of size, it's also about 5 million people. Um, so again, not a very big market compared to the US, for example. Um, and they're uh, in terms of companies that are, you know, mostly investable to Western investors, um, it's only about 30 companies that are above 1 billion market cap. Um, and what's interesting here after talking to several different companies is, you know, there's a large state owner um, in an investment vehicle in what's called Solidium. Um, so this investment vehicle has taken a stake um, in what they've determined to be the most national, uh, nationally important businesses within Finland. Um, and as I mentioned, there's only 30 of them that are above a billion market cap. And I think this uh, this entity owns 12 or 13 of them. Um, but there's, they're really, you know, having like several different conversations across different management teams here. Um, their presence is felt in terms of, you know, operationally day to day, it was, it was easy to kind of glean some examples for management teams, how, you know, they have a board seat in most cases, cause they're taking about a 10% stake. Um, so they have influence on the board, but then also there were interest in, instances where it came up that, um, you know, they influence sort of M&A decisions or the ability to uh, to wind down businesses in some cases. Um, you know, those kind of conversations clearly came up in, in a couple of different conversations that I had with, uh, with Finnish management teams there. So again, it's something as Western investors, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just it's just different, you know, to what we're used to here in a place like the United States, which has a huge economy and a, and a very diversified industry base. Um, here within Finland, 30 companies above a billion market cap, and most of the biggest ones are, um, you know, influenced by a state owner. And it's just something to be aware of, again, as we're trying to price these businesses uh, effectively, and then similarly, um, to maybe where we're finding value in other places and other parts of the world. So I thought that was pretty interesting from that perspective, but um, maybe I'll just stop there because there's, there's a lot of different directions to go there. Sure. Yeah. Maybe, maybe switch over to Micah. Micah, you mentioned you just got back from a, a trip to, to Canada. Um, what were your, what were you there to see and what were your thoughts uh, from the trip up there to, uh, to Calgary? Yeah, sure, Matt. So I periodically email various companies in the in the energy, metals, and mining re industry, just seeing if I can can come look at a site. Um, you can't like if you're covered retail, I could easily go look at a grocery store or a clothing retailer, but it's very difficult in metals and mining or oil and gas to go 
um, look at the site without um, just on your own. So I'm periodically emailing companies, hey, can I come check out your assets or uh, business, uh, see a site? And um, I had an opportunity to go see Canadian Natural Resources. They have a um, an, a large oil sands asset in the very uh, northern Canada called Horizon. And um, they, I was able to get a, a trip there. And so what I did, I flew to Calgary, and then there's a separate flight to go that goes from Calgary to northern Canada, basically for a full day trip up there to see um, and just meet people and uh, see meet employees and um, get to see everything from the big, huge trucks that uh, are kind of mining the ore, and then the you take it to the different facilities where it gets crushed and uh, kind of processed to make oil and getting to meet the people and, and talk to them and just learn a little bit more about the culture. And I mean, obviously, I've, I mean, I, I have never been to an oil sands asset before, so I don't really have a good comparison versus other oil sands assets. And uh, but I came away, uh, you know, just very impressed with how um, the focus on the culture and the focus on being low cost and efficiency and remaining accountable to each other and being willing to ask the hard questions, which isn't always um, the case. So I came away, um, yeah, it was a very positive trip and just learning more about um, Canadian natural resources and also just the oil sands and, and how that industry works as well. I was also able, usually when I make a trip, I usually email companies um, in the area, uh, both before and after trying to get more meetings. And so that was the case this time, I was able to get a meeting with an oil company um, on on Wednesday, and then another oil company on the day I flew into Calgary, and then on Friday morning, the day I flew out to Calgary as well. So just get it. I really personally enjoy going to visit company headquarters and getting to um, see executives or IR people on their own turf and just be able to uh, ask questions and learn more about the business. So it's very, very productive, just a quick, quick trip um, out Wednesday back on Friday night. But I, it was very productive, good use of time, a good return on investment um, for our firm as we continue to just learn more about um, the oil industry and energy and the oil sands in particular. Great. Thanks. You know, Chendor, you mentioned that uh, you're scheduled to go to India later this year. Uh, tell us a little about that trip and, and, and what you have planned and, and what, you're, what, what you're looking at to, to get from that trip and maybe some of the, the areas you're focused on. Sure. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a twofold trip. One is to just understand the company from a macro perspective, but most of my focus is going to be on healthcare. Um, and also India is all over the news these days. It seems to be after China plus one, after the Ukraine war, India taking over the chairmanship of the G20 this year, its presence in the world economic forums all around the world. It seems like there's a lot of talk about India and I can somewhat understand the excitement um, so for me, just the future potential of the country that is, is, is what that really fascinates me. So it's the fifth largest economy right now, but its per capita GDP is around $22 to $2,500. Um, that is not that much higher than sub-Saharan Africa. So, but yet there seems to be a lot of excitement uh, and for the expectation that by 2040 plus, India will be a middle-income co uh, country. And the expectation is, you know, the large population, the local market demand, uh, you know, reforms that have been put in place, uh, you know, robust institutions will be driving uh, that kind of growth. So, you know, if India is going to be a middle-income company, uh, country, it probably has to grow 4x to 5x uh, from today over the next like say couple decades. That's almost eight to ten percent Kager growth, you know, over the next couple decades. So that is the kind of numbers people are penciling in. Now we have to be conscious about 
ground realities and also you know be more sensitive to valuations and hype. So that's that's just a broad how I frame things about India broadly. So I want to go there and meet with companies, meet with other investors, and just you know like get updated on what's going on in India. I lived in India for twelve years. I left in two thousand one. So I've lived here for 23 years. So it's good to go back and do some groundwork. Um, specifically for healthcare, it is again another fascinating opportunity for investors looking at healthcare in India. So if you look at globally, right? So the percentage spend of GDP in OECD or developed countries is around 10 to 12 percent. Um, we in India, I mean, we in the US, uh, we spend a lot more money. We spend like close to 18 percent of GDP on healthcare. But you know, so usually 10 to 12 is a good proxy. Now, if you compare this to India, India spends 3% of GDP on, on healthcare. China spends 6% of GDP on healthcare. But on a dollar basis, it's the difference is a lot higher. So for example, uh, you know, Japan spends about $5,000 a year uh, per capita on healthcare. Um, the European countries are around that number, you know, you know, somewhere between four and seven thousand dollars. The U.S., you know, you know, just it's it's around twelve thousand dollars per uh, per capita. So India is only sixty dollars per capita. China is six hundred dollars per capita. So you know, if I just pencil in very roughly India's journey to a middle uh, to middle income, and also expect that they go spending from three percent GDP to say ten to twelve percent GDP, that is a twelve x expansion of the Indian healthcare market over the next 20 years. Now that's a massive opportunity. So it's it's driven by you know highly fragmented market access and utilization of services and goods is very low. It's an out of pocket uh, dependent country. So we mentioned about you know out of pocket costs and just reimbursement in general being poor also stifles innovation. So if that changes from you know out of pocket to a more formalized insurance system that could also spur innovation and India moving up the value chain. So that's another opportunity. It also results in higher productivity in, in, the, in the country. So I think, and also India might be a young country, but it also has a demographic tailwind, right? So you I mean, it goes from say, uh, you know, I think it's high 20s is the median age or something. Uh, you know, other countries are 30s and 40s. Um, so I think that also is a, is a long-term tailwind for healthcare in general. So my focus is gonna be on hospitals and that's an industry that's gone through a huge CapEx cycle. Right now it's about improving efficiency um, and also you know, and productivity for, for these hospitals. So I think hospital is an interesting uh, space to, to invest in, um, but valuations are stretched. So you know, one has to do bottoms up work and also be valuation sensitive. The other areas as a team we're kind of familiar with, which is uh, pharma, which is largely genetic companies that export to the US and Europe. Um, we know some of these companies. We also own a genetic company that's part of Novartis in Switzerland. Uh, and then the other opportunity is PDMOs or contract manufacturing organizations. So as API production moves from say China to say Vietnam or India, I mean, India has a pretty robust infrastructure for the production of these, uh, of these molecules and components that get into uh, uh, medical products. So it could address the huge domestic need, but just the sheer scale of capacity, it could also be an exporter. The question is, can it move up the value chain? So um, there are two factors there. One is you can look at India as eventually becoming a Brazil, which is 
uh, uh, you know, which is a which is a middle income country, but has been trapped in a middle income uh, situation for a long period of time. And if you look at innovation in Brazil, it's not very you know it's not very productive. It's not very high. It's just it, they still produce branded genetics and they now moving up the value chain, but it's been very slow process. But even if India goes from that to a Brazil type of situation, the returns, I mean, the potential for high returns is still there. But if India can become another Japan in the next 20, 30 years, then we're off to the races. So, so that's how I frame the market. Uh, we, haven't, we haven't owned anything in the healthcare space yet, but the opportunity is just huge. Sure. Well, thanks, thank, thanks for that, Chendor. And and maybe um, now's a good time we can, we we can have a maybe a, a fun question or two um, that I'll just I'll throw out to the group and and you guys can chime in uh, with with whatever answer you'd like. You know, you've you've had a lot of the recent travels. What's the best food you've had for the foodies that listen to the podcast? I can jump in here because I bet uh, I'm guessing that Chindor is going to say, say the same thing, but uh, we, uh, so we had a, an opportunity sort of at the end of our meetings at the end of the week uh, to take a, take a trip out to Kyoto, um, Japan, which is about an hour and a half, almost two hours uh, from Tokyo uh, by bullet train. Um, and out there, I mean, it was just a phenomenal Kobe beef uh, lunch that was, I mean, in chip, typical, um, you know, Japanese fashion, I would say is just pure, like the, the presentation was phenomenal. The quality of the meat was phenomenal. Um, you know, a few different, uh, different courses, um, seafood included in that, uh, was just a really sort of a nice treat and good way to, uh, to end the trip in my opinion. Um, but it was that by far the best, the best meal I've had yet, I think on the road. I'll go next, uh, give a, give a couple, um, when I, whenever I'm in London, I've only been a few times, but I always go, I, I'm a, I'm a simple person at heart. And so a good, um, dish of fish and chips always warms my soul. There's a place called the golden hind, um, that is often in a lot of the London's best fish and chips places. Every time I'm, I go to London, I, I go there, uh, for fish and chips. It's just, there's something about it that's just, um, Delicious. Uh, and then uh, Tokyo, I would say I used to live in China. So just having some bautsa, some Chinese kind of dumplings were just, I had those pretty much every morning for breakfast. And then um, Paris, I mean, lots of stuff was good. <laughs> I mean, just lots of kind of classic, classic dishes. So uh, I, I, it's always fun going out there. One thing I always often, I sometimes try to do is go visit publicly traded restaurants that are in those countries that are not in the U.S. So um just trying to experience and get some more on the ground um work but then you gotta you gotta mix it up go to the golden hind or something like that in london even though it's not publicly traded just because the food's so delicious yeah I, uh it's kind of funny because i've had cross uh what, what you might call it like so i've had the the best thai food i've had was in odaiba island outside of tokyo the best indian i've had is on the high street of london the best Peruvian I've had was in Amsterdam. So it boggles my mind that sometimes you go to a country and try to experience their food, but you might run into something else that's like fantastic. So that's been like a fascinating revelation for me. And, you know, like Singapore is the same thing. <laughs> so, so, I, so, but I completely agree with Chris when it came to, you know, the, how many courses were that, was that Chris, like four or five or something? I, I but, believe you're right. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, the care and the presentation and just that, 
you know, they strive for that perfection and making your experience top notch. I think that is a unique, uniquely Japanese experience. I would, I would say. So yeah. <laughs> That, that that's really fun to, to think about and uh hopefully whoever is listening to this um it's near it's near lunch or dinner uh and because I don't, I don't know about you guys but I'm, I'm hungry after hearing that so thank thank you three for for joining me on the podcast uh we look forward to hearing more stories in the future uh safe travels and and, and thanks for joining us and sharing your insights thanks for having us thanks Matt. Thank you, Matt.